ever soulful, ever bluesy Jimmy Wilson with our lead-off theme music. There's more of it at the back end. Stick around, you'll hear more of his blues music at the back end, and there's actually some lyrics there, so that's kind of cool. This is the third installment of Cocktails with Winemakers. This is our sub-series about winemaking on the Wine Beat. So welcome to the Wine Beat. I'm Craig, and again today on Cocktails with Winemakers, we're going to have Felix Egrer as our host. Felix is going to talk to us about fermentation. So Cocktails with Winemakers is a chance for us to sit down and not talk so much about, you know, grape varieties and regions and locations and travel. This is more about the nitty gritty of making wine. We sit down by the fire with some cocktails. In this case, we're having some margaritas and and we have a guy like Felix tell us about a specific aspect of winemaking that might be interesting to you as a wine lover. So let's jump right in. Felix is going to tell us about fermentation. He's going to dodge the question of whether great wine is made in the vineyard or made in the cellar. He's going to talk to us about the supernaturally cool process of making wine. Fermentation is something that has produced awe and religious reverence throughout human history. Its unique and powerful nature in terms of wine is that grapes and yeast will always get together and produce alcohol. It is their fate to coexist. While grapes provide the perfect substrate for making alcohol, the yeast that's floating around, that's always available in the vineyard, in the winery, without fail will hook up with those grapes, make itself available, and the two of them, the sugar from the grapes and the yeast, will combine, and they were going to make alcohol. This is really the history-bending thing that happens. Alcohol is produced because grapes and yeast will always get together. What we get out of it is our favorite intoxicant, alcohol. So Felix tells us about this, the virtuous relationship between grapes and yeast. He talks about fermentation using purely indigenous yeast versus using commercial yeast and He, again, diplomatically avoids any disputes about which one is better. You'll hear all about that. And then we go on and we talk about some other cool stuff. We talk about the battle for survival between the various microbes and the the way they try to dominate the fermentation and the fact that that has different sensory impacts on the wine. We talk about that arcane and mysterious subject, malolactic fermentation. Anyway, too much of my talking, not enough of Felix giving us the real goods. Here we go. This is the wine beat. Let's go. Boom. All right. Felix and I are back with episode three of Cocktails with Winemakers. Fireside chats with great winemakers, people who can introduce us to the inside story of how to make wine. We're not going to go too technical. We're going to try to keep this at a high level so it's interesting and fascinating and engaging. And we're going to talk about uh, fermentation. In the first two episodes, we talked about the picking decision uh, Felix, with his experience in viticulture, talked to, about, talked to us about uh, how you decide when to pick grapes and, the, and how complicated that can be and how many variables there are and how there's no exact right way to decide when to take the grapes out of the vineyard. And then we talked about moving those grapes into the, into the winery, crush pad operations, how you process the grapes, the mechanical part, white wine, how you mechanically process grapes for white wine, how you mechanically process grapes for red wine, the fundamental differences in the way you treat those grapes at the beginning of the fermentation process. 
and then how the fermentation is different. We talked about rosé wine, which is quite interesting. We didn't give that enough time. We're going to come back in a future episode and talk about rosé because I think that's so such a cool area. But this episode is fermentation. So now we're getting down to the money side of making wine. This is turning all that sugar into alcohol. And I think there's a kind of a cool discussion here about, okay, people say that 90% of wine, fine wine, is in the vineyard, right? If you're going to make fine wine, 90% or whatever percentage, 80, 90, 95. Whatever you want it to be. Is in the vineyard. But... Some people argue, well, the crush pad operation is super important, right? You got to get that right in terms of decisions and destemming, and you know your press runs and, and and how you move stuff to the tank, and is you know, you're keeping your grapes cool, and because it can ruin it during that mechanical process. And then we talk about fermentation. Well, you know, a lot of people think fermentation is the important part. You got to get your fermentation right. You got to avoid a stuck fermentation. So, what do you think? Where's the important part? It's a little bit of both. I mean, if you start with subpar grapes, you're never going to make amazing wine. If you have bad grapes, you're never going to make amazing wine. But if you have amazing grapes, you can still make bad wine. So it's definitely an important part of the process. Fermentation, um, it's that usually two to four week window where your wine changes from really sweet grape juice that tastes like grape juice to wine that has alcohol in it that now has flavors that are produced by the yeast in it that has tannin extracted from the red grapes in it and that actually tastes like wine and there are many ways to to influence that fermentation for well to reach certain outcomes and certain styles and it's really where the winemaker makes decisions and those decisions have a huge impact on what the product is going to be and that's where a winemaker can influence yeah influence the outcome influence what the wine's going to be when it's in your glass a few years later i'm going to get this little bit of history in here because i i always i always love this piece so you'll forgive me for jumping in but i think this historical piece kind of feeds into it all wine is a complete wine from grapes is a completely unique product. Beer, distilling, all of those things require a lot of human intervention. But wine is something that came absolutely naturally from a bunch of grapes dropping on the ground and the yeasts that were on those grapes, you know, infiltrating into the berries and and starting a fermentation completely naturally over, over the millennia. And creating an alcoholic beverage. And, you know, I like the literature that talks about how there's this supernatural relationship between human beings and wine. And how it's influenced religions, multiple religions, including Christianity to a huge degree. Because there's this kind of 
supernatural event that occurs when, when, when you know, 6,000, 7,000, 10,000 years ago, people didn't know that there were, you know, these microbes, these, uh, these, these yeast cells on the outside of it. And so, you, you know, wine would spring forth and create this, uh, this alcoholic beverage just naturally. And I love that. It's a kind of a very important cultural touchstone that has influenced our history completely. You know, it shows up in our religions and all of that and our myths and uh, the myths of many, many um, different cultures. So it's kind of very cool. But what we're doing is we're harnessing it. And uh, sorry for that digression, but we're harnessing it. And um, is a winemaker making a big difference? I mean, why doesn't he just let the stuff ferment? I mean, what's, what's, what, what happens? He can. She can. Absolutely. Um, just as you said, you take a bunch of grapes, you squish them or not, those grapes eventually, the sugar is going to be converted to uh, alcohol to a certain degree, and you'll end up with wine of some sorts. Um, but you can also, as you mentioned before, harness that process of fermentation by choosing a specific strain of yeast that you want to complete the fermentation with. And by adding that yeast strain, they're commercially available yeasts um, that you can buy from suppliers. There's a handful of suppliers and it's those yeasts have been selected in labs and um, you get them usually freeze dried and you rehydrate them and bring up, build up a culture, and then you dump a bucket full of billions of yeast cells into your juice, and they start doing their thing. They start eating up the sugar and converting it into alcohol and CO2 while producing heat in the process. So your fermentation will always heat up a little bit, and while they do that, they also consume nutrients in the juice because they need something, they need energy to stay alive. And they produce all sorts of aroma compounds and all sorts of other chemical molecules that are then in the wine. So you choose, people choose yeast strains because they want to enhance a certain character in their wine. Um, when you go through the leaflets um, that suppliers give you, it's it's like being at a bar. You choose what you choose what you want. You want your wine to be more on the red fruit side as far as aromas go. There's a yeast strain for that. You want it to be darker fruit. There's a yeast strain for that. You want it to ferment, or you want a yeast strain that can ferment up to a higher degree of alcohol. Um, important, um, say in hotter regions where some of the red varieties end up, you end up with wine that's 15, 15 and a half, 16 percent alcohol. And some yeasts wouldn't be able to. Some yeast strains, they'll just no, they they'd just conk they out. conk out. They they can't handle that kind of alcohol because alcohol is a toxin. And um, so you the, can't always rely on the the local natural yeasts. I mean, sometimes you need a commercial yeast to aside from all the preferences and tailoring. 
you yeah, in certain situations, um, you you need that kind of yeast. If you if you have fruit that is maybe a little damaged, there's a little bit of disease in there. There might be some um, some malicious bacteria or yeast in the fruit, and you just want to ensure a, a fast fermentation and a clean fermentation. Then uh, then you can add yeast to that. I think over the overwhelming amount of wine in the world don't quote me on that but i assume is fermented with commercial strains with commercial strains yeah most most big producers if you have tens of thousands of liters of juice in a tank you're not going to take any chances um you want your product especially in the big skews to be the same every year and you know you take this bag of yeast you use this yeast and it's going to give you a similar almost identical product every year and that's what you need in that situation smaller producers um or now this whole wave of natural producers might want to just let the grapes do their thing whatever the outcome may be um and even in that there's hands off and then there's hands off there's people who still manage their their native ferments and there's people who will walk away and just, it is what it is. Um, even if the wine is ruined. Even if the wine is ruined. But then again, what is ruined? For some people, it's ruined. For other people, it's just ah, okay. Okay. Um, It's just what the wine wanted to be. It's, it's very subjective. And there's a huge, well, there's a huge natural wine, low intervention wine movement going on globally right now. And there's a lot of discussion. What are faults? Um, what is natural wine? And I mean, you put five winemakers at a table and they talk about it and there'll be six opinions and they'll still be talking tomorrow, probably. Yeah. yeah. It's, but that again is a whole nother podcast. Yeah, that's, that's an important perspective. And natural winemaking, that is a, that is a, a whole another podcast. Uh, and we'll come back to it but i think there's something very cool um in terms of the tremendous battle that's going on in the in the tank as the ferment as the you know as these berries are dumped into this tank off the crush pad and there's bacteria and there's yeast and there's different kinds of bacteria and there's different kind of yeast and there's this massive battle going on for dominance because they're all feeding on the substrate the sugars and whatever else is in there they're feeding on the acids. They're feeding. They're feeding on all kinds of things in there, aren't they? And um, and they're all battling for dominance. And this is part of what the winemaker is trying to harness. And I think it gets a bit. I mean, it's almost overwhelming, right? People say, "Well, you get certain flavor compounds if this kind of bacteria has been in there, or that." You know, and they, you know, this yeast will be there early, but then it'll be overcome by this yeast, and these different flavor compounds come out of that battle. And if I can put it that way. Uh, it's overwhelming, right? It really oh, absolutely. is. Absolutely, it's um, it's incredibly multidimensional. This what's that board game you play with the different clans? What's it called? Oh, the settlers. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit like settlers of Catan, you know. And somebody starts off weak, but then they kind of go over here. Yeah. And oh, get I mean, dominated by somebody else. Fermentation. It's it's a dynamic process. It's not static in in any way. As soon as you crush the grapes and even before there's all this 
microbial life out in the vineyard sitting on the grapes on the skins on the stems on the hands of the pickers and they're all fighting for dominance they're all fighting for survival and once they're in the tank and there's sugar oh man sugar is like that's what everyone wants pretty much except the guys who chew through acid but sugar is pure energy it's energy in its rawest form as a carb and it's very easy to break down and so as soon as you crush those grapes and have free sugar available populations of microbes will start to establish and they'll start to multiply bacteria and yeast and there's all these different kinds of both in the world millions if not billions of different kinds and the only one we're really interested in is saccharomyces is the yeast is the brewer's yeast because it's the strongest fermenter and it will take all the sugar and turn it into alcohol, which is ultimately what we are looking for. We are interested in some of the other products to a certain degree, but ultimately we want alcohol out of the grape sugar. So we try to encourage Saccharomyces in the fermentation and encourage it to take over and become the dominant population be that by adding a yeast culture to the grapes or be that by managing a native ferment in a way that Saccharomyces will take over. And Saccharomyces is a very strong fermenter and is it will establish dominance fairly quickly and easily. And that's the magic. And, and that's the magic, yeah. Saccharomyces will do its thing. If, if it's given the right opportunity, it'll... It'll get in there, it'll dominate, and it'll take that fermentation all the way to finish. And that's important, right? I mean, you don't want a fermentation to go partway and then just stop. Because no. what happens then? Then you're in a really awkward spot. Because you have a fermentation that has some alcohol, it has some sugar, and it's just really dangerous. Because something else can start chewing away at that sugar and multiplying and... Usually at that stage in fermentation, it's it's either yeast strains that you want or you don't want, or it is bacteria that you don't want, especially um, bacteria that can feed off of sugar and or alcohol, and that's when you're in trouble. That's when your wine can go south really, really quickly, and when a ferment sticks, we refer to them as stuck ferments, when alcoholic fermentation just stops. Um, it makes people uncomfortable really quickly in the cellar just because it's it's the one thing that can, yeah, that can mess with you. can ruin that tank of wine. You've got a, you end up with a, a tank of wine. The fermentation hasn't completed. There's still some sugar in there. The yeast have not, maybe they haven't died out. Maybe they've died. Maybe they've just gone to such a low level of activity that they can't carry on. And now you've got the opportunity for those sugars that are left to be used by other microbes and create havoc. Yeah. Create off aromas, off flavors, all that sort of stuff. But in an ideal situation, you've you've managed your fermentation and the Saccharomyces is your preferred uh, yeast strain and it's done its thing and you get through to dry. That's the, that's the key. 
Yeah. Use up all the sugar. Chew through all the sugar. Absolutely. All right. So there we go. We've, we've, we've fermented our wine to dry, whether it's red or white or rosé. Uh, the yeast has done its thing. And now you're left with a, and we talked a little bit about this in the last episode in terms of uh, red wine fermentation. And, you know, the fermentation is complete and you take the, you take the free run juice and you press the skins and stuff to get the press run. And you take that wine and you put it in barrel. It's dry. We would recognize it as wine at this point, right? Yep. We would taste it. It would taste like wine. It tastes like young wine. It would taste not like finished, finished wine. It would taste like wine. Yeah. Because it's dry. It's it's not sugary. It's It's got alcohol. It's, it's got, got alcohol. It's got the acids. In, in the case of the reds, it, it has some tannin and color. It looks different. It's red or it's yellow in case of whites. Yep. And this is what our fair forebears from couple thousand years ago would have been looking for as well right they would have been trying to get that sugar completed completely fermented so that it's stable it doesn't turn into other things doesn't get ruined so now we've got wine um and that's alcoholic fermentation in a in a in a nutshell did we miss anything in terms of alcohol i mean we missed a lot but i mean is that a fair yeah. description yeah pretty much i mean it's he's taking sugar and chewing through the sugar until there's no sugar left okay alcohol from alcoholic fermentation is complete we've got something that resembles pretty good wine we're going to age it we're going to if it's white wine it might be ready to be bottled right send it send it to the bottling uh, line and uh, away you go hopefully it's stable enough it's going to last in the bottle it's going to be great wine uh, red wine particularly there's another fermentation there's another famous fermentation which is a bit more mysterious right i mean people people understand you know um, yeast fermentation alcoholic fermentation but then there's malolactic fermentation and this is important this is um this is one of those mysterious things that people don't really uh, they hear about it and uh, they'll hear psalms and wine geeks talking about mallow what's malolactic Malolactic fermentation, malolactic fermentation, technically a conversion. Um, it's bacterial, so it's not yeast performing it, but it's bacteria. And it is um, performed by malolactic b- bacteria, and the name hints towards it. It involves malic acid and lactic acid, and essentially the, the bacteria feed on malic acid and convert it into lactic acid um, while also producing CO2, uh, which off-gasses uh, out of the wine. It's just bubbles. And um, as you mentioned before, it's most red wines in the world undergo malolactic fermentation just because we age them longer than we would whites and it's a it's a process that happens naturally because um as we mentioned two episodes ago when we were talking about acids and grape um, malic acid is the one acid that is not stable the one acid that can be broken down and that will be broken down readily because microbes can gain energy from it and so you have the malic acid which is still present in in your wine um 
we'll take red as an example, and either you add malolactic bacteria, which can you can buy them freeze dried, and very expensive to buy. Okay, same way as you would buy uh, yeast, yeah. uh, freeze dried yeast. Yeah, you get them from your supplier, and then uh, you either rehydrate them or some products that you just put into barrels or into the tank. And then the bacteria will come back to life and chew through the malic acid and convert it into lactic um, acid. It's the wine. So malic acid is a pretty harsh acid. It's pretty harsh tasting um, on the palate. And lactic acid is fairly soft. So it's in whites, it's often used as a stylistic tool more than a stability tool because it softens the wine and the palate a little bit um, especially in cooler climate regions you have some of the whites that are really really harsh and if you put them through um, through mal malolactic fermentation or conversion um, then it just softens the wine a little bit makes it more palatable easier to drink and um, yeah you end up with lactic acid and the softness also just smoothens softens the mouth feel a little bit and just coats the coats your palate a little bit more and um as a byproduct of malolactic fermentation you sometimes end up with um that iconic california chardonnay buttery popcorn flavor which is diacetyl right. um it's produced by the bacteria and um it's a side effect it's a side effect yeah it's a natural product because diacetyl um, which gives the buttery flavor yeah certain certain strains that you buy produce more diacetyl than others um oh so you can tailor that you can, you can tailor that too you, it's, you can pick you can pick malolactic strains that are um tailored to your ferment more or less it's just like yeast you have a catalog um they're not as many options but you can pick a strain that suits your needs and um then you have you end up with yeah, a red that has gone through mail that is stable. You could bottle it right then, and it wouldn't re-ferment and bottle. A risk with a lot of whites, white wines that did not go through malolactic fermentation. If you don't bottle them essentially sterile, um, then you risk there being, all it takes is a few cells, a few little bacteria, malolactic bacteria, and there being malic acid present, and they discover it in the bottle and they start multiplying and re-fermenting in the bottle and all of a sudden your bottle is turbid and effervescent and that's something you really don't want yeah. Uh, yeah. as a winemaker and as a consumer because the wine is then faulty. Yeah, and as a commercial enterprise suddenly you've got thousands oh. of bottles coming back. Absolutely, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. And there's this interesting... As, as, as is always the case with wine, there's these interesting historical elements, right? Imagine the guys in, I always think of the guys in Burgundy 200 years ago making wine and storing it in their cellar. And if it was a cold winter, that malolactic might not happen because the bacteria, it's too cold for them to get busy. And they would find maybe that they had a problem with uh, stability later on right after the winter into the spring and the summer their wines are suddenly there's something happening in there there's this bacteria getting busy working on that malic acid substrate um and they found that in a milder winter then the 
magically, they wouldn't have those same problems. The wines kind of took care of themselves because the, malic, the, the malolactic fermentation would take place. Now we're able to control it a bit, I guess is, is, is the point. And not only are we able to control it from a wine stability perspective, but we're able to harness it a bit and kind of pull, pull out the characteristics we'd really like to have. Yeah. And people, I mean, they're winemakers who add malolactic bacteria um, during primary fermentation, during alcoholic fermentation, and have the two fermentations going at the same time, which that's, has... That's which, a good point. That's a good. That's a good point. So, they don't. They don't always happen at the same time. No, no. Traditionally, I mean, if everything goes naturally, there's no way of of controlling whether or not it happens. But traditionally, yeast is so dominant in a fermentation that nothing else will survive at that point. And so, alcoholic fermentation goes through first, finishes, and then malolactic fermentation follows. Be that right afterwards during a mild winter or if it was a cold winter and your deep hand dug cellars are cold, it just starts in spring. That's just the way it goes. If you, if it goes naturally, now that we have the power of controlling it and buying cultures, you can add a during fermentation and use some of that heat produced during fermentation to have your bacteria be nice and comfortable, establish a large population and, ferment the um the malic acid right away or at the end of fermentation some people add it right after fermentation after they press the reds to use some of that heat still but to make the wine stable before it goes into barrel some people prefer to not add any bacteria at all and to just let it do malo whenever it does malo sometimes you then end up with barrels that are kind of struggling in spring and summer and the closer it gets to bottling the more nervous the winemaker gets because you have um, barrels with struggling bacteria and they produce all sorts of other compounds that you don't necessarily want because they're stressed and you want that wine to be stable before it goes to bottle so not quite as complex as yeast fermentation and not quite as many options but still a lot of factors that you can control if you choose to do so okay cool so alcoholic fermentation with yeast malolactic fermentation with malolactic bacteria mm -hmm. two very very different processes sometimes happening at the same time it's also bloody complicated oh absolutely absolutely sometimes I've experienced it that alcoholic fermentation starts, then stops, malolactic happens, and then alcoholic picks up again. Makes people very uncomfortable <laughs> because you then don't see any decrease in sugar anymore and you're stuck. You have a stuck fermentation like you mentioned earlier, and it's a very, it's a danger zone to be in. And then after 10 days or a couple of weeks, all of a sudden, Sugar fermentation, alcoholic fermentation just starts up again and hopefully goes through. I don't it's, think people realize how stressful it is to be a winemaker. I mean, we, you know, as consumers, we just think we're going we're to pick up a bottle of wine. It's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be clear. It's going to be, it's not going to bubble over when we open the cork. 
And the winemaker's sweating it the whole time. Especially during harvest. Yeah. And especially once stuff starts going wrong. That's it's the littlest things. It's it's funny is not the right word, but it's interesting to see how winemakers who are usually most winemakers are fairly confident people because they they have this task and there's a lot of burden on their shoulders to do their job and to make it happen and they only have so much control over it and then you see stuff going wrong during harvest and all of a sudden they lose their composure and it's it's interesting and it's very you learn a lot in those moments how people handle it and there are a lot of different approaches and I've seen every winemaker I've worked with in the past, they all have their own little book of tricks to deal, how to deal with situations like that. Some people just sit it out and wait. Other people will immediately try to rescue the fermentation and um, try to restart it with a yeast by adding a yeast strain that will ferment at higher alcohols and, will get the job done eventually. Um, and others just get really creative with racking half fermented juice and then adding some leaves from a different ferment that are already finished. And it's great. It's the art and the science it's again. Absolutely. Art, science and magic where fermentation is essentially magic. It's crazy. You, you start with something and two weeks later you end up with a completely different product product. It's great. I love it. Well, thanks for joining me on uh, Cocktails with Winemakers. It was Felix, a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Uh, hopefully, we'll come back and do some more. Absolutely. Different cocktails. Are next time it? yeah, it's on uh, me. Margaritas. Uh, that's enough margaritas. What are we going to do next time? I don't know. Negronis? Negroni. Okay. It's the winemaker cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks again, Felix. Thank you very much, Craig. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Okay, and that was episode number three of Cocktails with Winemakers. Hope you loved it, and give it up for Felix. He does such a great job. If you haven't listened to episode number one, that was about the harvest decision, when you pick the grapes, and how a great winemaker knows how to optimize his fruit, when to pick it to make great wines. Then episode number two was about crush pad operations, so when the grapes are all coming in at harvest and all the madness is going on on the crush pad. And then... uh, and that was Felix as well. So, And then this episode number three. So Felix is our guest across all of those three. He does a great job, and I think it's a great introduction to winemaking um, for, for non-winemakers. So uh, please pick those up on the website. You can also find a whole bunch of other content on the website. There are a whole bunch of podcasts. There's f- a series of four podcasts recently with winemakers in the Loire, which give you a great cross-section of the Loire Valley. Um, there's podcasts from Spain, from Italy, from Greece, so much content, uh, to, to, to enjoy. And there's also articles. We've had some, some big success, uh, some popular articles on Bierzo in Spain, on Nikolai Hoff in the Wachau in Austria, and, um, and, uh, most recently from Slovenia. So join us, uh, at www.thewinebeat.com for all that content, And with that, I'm going to sign off. This is Craig for The Wine Beat. Please give a round of applause by sending a comment or an email for Felix, our host on these Cocktails with Winemakers series. And to Jimmy Wilson, here he goes. This is the outgoing music with Jimmy Wilson. 
Thanks for joining me again on The Wine Beat. See you next time. Bye. You can talk about your whiskey. You can talk about your beer. You look